0: EMS One Academy, a training solution designed for EMS Chiefs, offers more than 200 courses and 250 hours of continuing education. Our modern learning solution includes flexible reporting capabilities and features to upload agency-specific courses and track credentials for recertification. Easily streamline daily administrative workflow with EMS One Academy. Start your free trial. Visit www.emsoneacademy.com slash inside EMS.
1: So here it is once again. It's time that time of the week where you take your break from your regular EMS, so we can go inside EMS. And here he is, my good friend, my partner, my buddy, Kelly Grayson KG. What's going on with you?
0: Oh man, I'm just getting over the jet lag. Just got back from Connecticut at the uh, EMS uh, Pro Expo, uh, where I had an excellent time at uh, at the Mohegan Casino and and. Uh, Doing my thing and and, and sharing a, a little time with the tribe, you know.
1: EMS, you're on the EMS World Tour once again, huh?
0: That's it, man. The next stop in the Medic Solutions World Tour.
1: So, I do want to talk to you a little bit about, I, I guess I need a little education. And who is it better to go Boy, to it's than, some, than a
0: little education? Well,
1: I mean, let's, let's, I'm admitting it though. So, the difference between you and I is I know my challenges and I go <laughs> ahead and confront them, where you as, just uh you know think that you know everything but uh i'm going to give this one to you but i, I want to understand so we've talked about you know the the sport of uh you know folks down there is the truck and tractor pull so we know that that's a big one oh we man. had our discussions about
0: stereotype okay?
1: no 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 i, I wouldn't think of it I'm, I'm just trying to be honest and we've talked about the magic that you call uh what is that called uh, that noise um Country music. So, but I I guess I need some assistance now in the discussion of lingo. So, you said, before we started recording, you said, um, fitna, get ready to do some, and I didn't understand the term fitna. And you said, well, it means fixin' to. Well, how does fixin' to equate to fitna? Uh,
0: it it just does, man. When you're from the South, we, we, uh... We don't know many words so we have to make the ones we know stand up and do tricks I see so, yeah so uh, when, when you when you when you struggle with a, the with a triple digit vocabulary uh, each word has to has to take on different meanings um, but no fitna is, is my is a southern colloquialism where, where we're just kind of too lazy to, to actually enunciate and it means fixing to. I see
1: you know one of the funny things about it is you hear the term fitna quite a bit. And I always try to point it out to people. I said, what's fitna? What are you talking about? You just said fitna. No, I didn't. I said fixin' to. No, you didn't say fixin' to. You said fitna. But I understand it. It's like New York. Instead of saying y'all, we say use guys. So it's kind of, uh, I guess it is. does depend on where you live in the United States as to those colloquialisms that you use to get your point across.
0: That's right. That's right. And, and for point of reference, y'all is Singular. All y'all is plural. I see. Just so open you down in the South and you're using it correctly. And, and where it's like fitna and I'm on and, and all that kind of stuff, I'm on is, is that's one my daughter's horrible at. She'll, because she, she's got a drawl, you think I've got one, She's hers is bad. And she'll say frequently, I'm on, which means I'm going to. <laughs> I'm like uh, Katie Beth, that's that's pretty bad here. <laughs> we got to work on that. <laughs>
1: uh, hilarious, man. So, you know, Kelly, today, I think we have a really good show. Uh, we, I think we have a really good show every week, but we try to, you know, think of things that uh, we want to, uh, you know, that the audience would really relate to. And this, uh, this show, we want to really kind of talk about uh, CPAP and how CPAP has changed the fabric of how we've started to treat uh, our CHF patients and, you know, other folks as well. So one of the things that I used to do uh, back in the old days before electricity was we would treat CHF (laughs) patients with Lasix. We would treat CHF patients with morphine. We would treat CHF patients with um, nitroglycerin.
0: Yeah, the Holy Trinity of CHF, only only one of them actually worked.
1: Exactly, but we didn't know that. Again, this is one of the dogmas of EMS where yeah. we're told that we need to treat people. And then, you know, quite a few years ago, we started to shift. And this was really, what I really enjoyed about the CPAP movement was, this was one of the first times that EMS was really leading the way in treating in the field. When we were going into the hospitals, a lot of the hospitals were saying, what are you doing with this CPAP thing? And now it was really where the tail was starting to wag the dog. But now the standard of care in treating CHF patients is CPAP. And I thought you as an educator, you know, you as a paramedic who's probably using this device on a regular basis, Mm -hmm. I thought it'd be really good if we talked about the importance of how CPAP has changed our course of treatment, and I thought maybe I would interview you from the standpoint of an educator, from the standpoint of being a paramedic, exactly how CHF treatment. And the use of CPAP has really kind of changed and really made a huge difference in taking care of Mm -hmm. these patients. So I guess the first question I want to ask you is, from your experience of knowing where we came from and knowing where we are today, how important was this movement, how important was this treatment in the care of CHF patients?
0: Huge. Absolutely huge. Uh, You know, one of the advantages to to being a, a uh, EMS dinosaur, uh, not quite as ancient as some, uh, but is that you have the perspective to see where EMS was 20, 25 years ago versus where it is now. And it, it's a different profession. And, and some of the advances in treatment that we've had have really revolutionized uh, the, the practice of pre-hospital care. Uh, I would say that CPAP is one of them. Uh, followed short thereafter by capnography uh, and, and uh, specifically waveform capnography, which we're still uh, harnessing the, the uh, uses of. Um, and, and in l- later years, it's probably been uh, video laryngoscopy, and probably the next one up on the list is a pre-hospital point-of-care ultrasound. Um, but capnography alone has kind of revolutionized uh, the way we do respiratory and ventilatory support and and oxygenation of our patients, it's been kind of a double edged sword. In one way, we have our our intubation and advanced airway management skills have kind of declined, uh, partially because we haven't devoted sufficient time and practice and education to it in our initial education programs, but also because of of skills maintenance and rust out in the field. With the advent of CPAP, we just don't get the opportunity to tube as many people as we once did because it's such an effective treatment. Now, it's great for our patients uh, that, that we can avoid a, a big step like endotracheal intubation, which can potentially um, make their their care uh, a lot more complex and a lot more risky. Uh, on the other hand, for the patients who still do need endotracheal intubation, we're not as practiced at it. Uh, I don't know about you, Chris, but uh, um, you know, back in the day, you, you intubated two or three different types of patients. You intubated your codes, cardiac arrest, you intubated your severe trauma patients where you couldn't manage their airway effectively and you needed to ventilate them. Uh, and you intubated failing CHFers. Well, now we know that, 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 um, RSI done poorly or in or endotracheal intubation done poorly is probably bad for those head injury patients. We know that cardiac arrest, uh, patients don't necessarily need advanced airway management in the first few stages of the arrest and that the chfers can can be turned around uh and stabilized without intubation by using cpap Man, there's there's precious few opportunities for paramedics to to provide endotracheal intubation anymore um but you know that's a good thing for the patients uh and and lately we've seen it start to trickle down into the bls realms there's a number of states that are allowing uh uh, BLS uh, personnel, EMTs to to apply CPAP, and I think that's a good thing. I think it's we pretty much uh, settled the science on whether it's beneficial or not, and, and we're actually starting to use it in in uh, situations other than just CHF and acute pulmonary edema.
1: Yeah, I agree. And one of the things that I always found amazing was when we when we dealt with these CHF patients, sometimes these folks were really in a bad way. I mean, when you intubate somebody and you get pink, frothy sputum that's coming up through the tube, you know that mm-hmm. you have a problem. But one of the things that I always found amazing was that somebody who is severe CHF and had some pulmonary edema, when we used CPAP, sometimes these folks were talking to us by the time we got, got them to the hospital. Oh, yeah. And uh, that's what I really found amazing about it. So I, So can you share with us a little bit about how CPAP works on congestive heart failure?
0: Yeah. Well, it, it, it basically it it helps both phases of of breathing. It, it helps boost both oxygenation uh, and ventilation. Um, C, CPAP uh, helps with with the actual act of of gas exchange, uh, and it also helps with the act of ventilation. Um, when when we have patients in CHF and acute pulmonary edema, and, and you have uh, a a osmotic pressure gradient from all this fluid. Uh, third spacing out of the pulmonary vasculature and, 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 uh, and increasing the distance between the alveolar and the capillary membranes, uh, oxygen uh, exchange and CO2 exchange is diminished quite some, quite some bit. Um, but by stabilizing or at least uh, help, helping flatten out that pressure gradient with a little uh, end-expiratory pressure, uh, that CPAP provides, um, you don't. Uh, that effect isn't nearly as pronounced. You get a little better oxygen exchange as well. Uh, plus, it, it you know helps stent and uh, stent open and re- and recruit uh, collapsed alveoli and, and give us more surface area for gas exchange. But it also makes the act of breathing a little easier. Uh, BiPAP uh, is probably better for that than CPAP. But there's not a whole lot of definitive evidence that says the BiPAP pre-hospital is. Uh, is a great deal better than than just plain old CPAP. Um, But it's not just CHF that it benefits. The CHF or the acute pulmonary edema patient also helps with our asthma patients and our COPD patients as well.
1: It does. You know, one of the things that I, I, I think is really a benefit as well, we talked about intubating these patients that had congestive heart failure, that had pulmonary edema. And then one of the challenges was that after they were intubated, these people would stay intubated for some time, and then trying to get them off the tube and, and wean them if they oh, yeah. if they at some point didn't get a trach because they were you know they had this uh, in place for so long. So one of the things that I think this was able to do as well, it was able to you know this was a non-invasive way to treat conge- uh, congestive heart failure, and now we were able to see patients actually getting better. Uh, with this horrible disease. And I think that that's really uh, something that was beneficial. And as you mentioned, you know, it, it kind of pushes, you know, if we want to go ahead and take it in its simplest form, because you gave us a really good book definition, but in its simplest form, the pressure that we're adding is really pushing that fluid away. It's pushing that fluid you know, to a point where the ovioli have the opportunity to kind of do what they're supposed to do. It keeps the ovioli open, so that you know, so that, you know, the surfactant that uh, may have been you know kind of washed away is now you know allowing those ovioli to stay open and not to collapse, which is very very important. Because mm-hmm. now, as and and there's even the opportunity that some of those collapsed ovioli may also be able to refill. You know, so that's another uh, another great thing about this. So as we now talk about CPAP, as we now talk about administering CPAP, if we were going to use it on the ambulance, what's the best way? What's what's a good maybe if we were going to write a protocol for the use of CPAP? What does that look like?
0: Uh, well, first of all, using the appropriate equipment. There are some CPAP devices out there that are rudimentary and and not and, and I won't. Uh, Tout one device manufacturer over another, but you 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 have to weigh uh, the needs of your system uh, and the hospitals that you transport to uh, versus uh, cost effectiveness and 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 that sort of thing. So there there are three broad types of CPAP devices. There are the ones that are powered by external flow generators, which are the most versatile. However, they are also the most expensive in terms of startup cost. You might. Uh, Lay out over a thousand dollars for a flow generator for one ambulance. Uh, now the per-patient cost after that for for the disposable circuits are on a par with the disposable CPAP systems. But the problem is with external flow generators, and I and and I also include downs flow generators as well, which are uh, are capable of providing CPAP. Downs flow generators are basically a a venturi manifold that you can hook to a fifty psi source and then hook generic. Ventilator circuit or CPAP circuit tubing to it. Uh, some are adjustable and others are are, are not so adjustable. Um, but you still need uh, uh, compatible circuits with the hospital. Um, uh, so you, you what you what you gain in versatility, you you uh, you probably lose a little uh, little um, uh, interoperability, I guess you'd say, uh, or interchangeability with the hospital system. Uh, and then there's the probably the most cost-effective solution, but the least uh, versatile, and that's the disposable CPAP systems made by a variety of manufacturers that just hook to a, uh, a normal oxygen flow meter and, and provide CPAP based on what your your regulator or the hospital uh, flow meter can do. First, I would say that, that if you had a patient who has uh, CHF or acute pulmonary edema and difficulty breathing, um... Uh, CPAP would be the primary, indi- uh, CPAP would be a, a primary treatment indicated, um, rather than step up to say a non-rebreather mask in those patients. If you get to the point where you cannot oxygenate them well with a nasal cannula, uh, in my mind, uh, you should skip the non-rebreather and move straight to CPAP. Uh, when it comes to COPD and asthma, uh, if the patient has really, really, uh, diminished lung sounds, uh, silent chest, uh, that sort of thing, uh, and and uh, they're they are not improving with a meter dose inhaler or, or a, a small volume nebulizer, you should add CPAP to that as well and give your your uh, respiratory medications through a, a T connector uh, through the CPAP. Uh, rather than just uselessly fogging some some albuterol or or uh, or Atrivent, uh, around their upper airways that are the few that are still open. You can stent those, those airways open and, and actually get that, uh, that medication down to where it'll do some good. So I would say that primary treatment, uh, it would be your primary intervention for your CHFers and acute pulmonary edema patients after just simple oxygenation and positioning by nasal cannula. And it should be probably a second-line treatment to albuterol and Atrovent and, uh, and, uh, and small-volume nebulizers for your, for your asthma and COPD patients. Well, we can also use it as a pre-oxygenation technique for our respiratory failure patients where we're planning to intubate them, uh, or at the very least, insert a superglottic airway. Right.
1: That's a really uh, good point. That's a really good point.
0: Yeah. Well, one of the things that Jeff Jarvis uh, talked about in his lecture uh, at the uh, EMS Pro Expo this past weekend was was uh, resuscitate before intubate, uh, meaning that, that the best way to pre- prevent cardiac arrest and deterioration of our hypoxic patients is stop intubating people while they're hypoxic. Don't even try it. Right. Don't try an advanced airway if the patient is still hypoxic. Use BLS means to get their SAT up to 98% or better. Hold it that way for at least three minutes and then you build some reserve up uh, and and the the uh, um, outcome won't be as, as iffy once you intubate. Uh, yeah. Use CPAP uh, or PEEP With the PBM, apnea oxygenation techniques, including nasal cannula at 15 liters, um, and build that patient up some reserves before you do that advanced airway maneuver. And I think that's one of the that's part of the double edged sword with CPAP. On the one hand, CPAP has made our uh, has. Has kind of resulted in us losing some of our airway skills and airway our intubation proficiency because because it's so much more effective and we don't intubate as often because of that. Right. But by the same token, you can also use CPAP to make your intubation attempt more effective uh, and less risky by using it as a pre-oxygenation technique. Yeah, that's a um, great technique. and if necessary, even sedate the patient um, with ketamine. We're just, we're discovering that's safe and efficacious as well. You know. Once upon a time, the, the CPAP contraindications was the patient with altered mental status uh, who'd fight you and, and, and uh, couldn't tolerate the mask putting on their face. Uh, now, with a little bit of sedation and ketamine, which is also a pretty good bronchodilator, we can make a CPAP more tolerable uh, and get those patients possibly even turned around and, and not have to intubate them at all. But if we need to, we can continue on with the intubation and the patient is, is well oxygenated uh, and are not as likely to deteriorate once we drop two.
1: Yeah, and I got to tell you, I mean, as you're and you're laying this out perfectly, and 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 I think that this has really been a great benefit. And one of the things that we've got to really think about is now, you know, we, you know, I started this conversation off by saying, you know, uh, nitroglycerin, morphine, uh, you know, Lasix. And that was the holy grail. But now, as you just laid this out for us, we've taken a 180 degree pivot from that treatment. Mm -hmm. And now we're really kind of doing, you know, a lot of things that are making that a a bigger difference. Now, one of the things that you mentioned where you talked about putting the mask on somebody and you talked about, you know, people feeling a little bit of anxiety. There have been a lot of clinical trials when it comes to CPAP. And I think this is going to be our last question because of time but there's been a lot of clinical trials that have been out there, and and there are some side effects when it comes to the use of CPAP. They're really, let's call them minor complications, mm-hmm. and one of those is the most uh, common problem that we find is anxiety because remember now, you've got a patient that's having difficulty breathing secondary to pulmonary edema, and we're coming in with this mask, and we're throwing it on their face, and mm-hmm. a lot of times they're going to have some challenges because of that feeling of uh, uh, whether it's claustrophobia or whether it's that they can't catch a breath anymore because we just put this plastic thing on our face. Uh, what are some of the other things that we may see when it comes to the use of CPAP as a, as, as a quote-unquote side effect?
0: Well, you, you want to be careful in your asthma and COPD patients who have potential for significant air trapping uh, when using CPAP. It can potentially, and I'm emphasizing the word potentially, uh, because, uh, that's not really proven, but it could potentially, um, uh, exacerbate air trapping. Uh, if that being the case, if, if it got to the point where a patient is significantly air trapping, um, and, and you have to relieve that we'll just drop the tube. I say drop the tube, Jarvis would kill me on this. You proficiently and smoothly insert an endotracheal tube and then disconnect the BVM and force some of that air out of their lungs. Uh, to help relieve that air trapping, CPAP can exacerbate that. But if you're using it as a pre-oxygenation technique, where the next step is going to be an advanced airway, you have a way to manage that. You also have to be careful about patients who with with significantly decreased level of consciousness, um, because uh, the, that's a, a good sign that they're failing. You know, uh, you mentioned the agitation and the anxiety. Well, we only put CPAP on people who are who are hypoxic and hypoxic patients are not calm and cooperative the majority of the time. Those two don't go well together. Right. But if the patient is getting hypercapnic uh, and, and by their CO2, their, their CO2 level is starting to rise and, and, which indicates respiratory failure and tiring. Which makes uh, capnography,
1: was, which makes capnography, an important component to
0: this as well. That's right. That's right. And they're and they're lethargic, you know, which is more of a sign of hypercapnia than it is for uh, of hypoxia. Uh, you want to be careful with the CPAP, and it may be to the point where where you can't uh, you you can't effectively ventilate them with CPAP. But that's not to say that you can't use the same mechanism. Just simply bag them using a peep valve, and that's another thing CPAP has done for us in recent years. Is it's given us a greater greater appreciation for positive end expiratory pressure. So if you can't do it via a mask on their face, we'll do it via a a peep valve on your BBM or a peep valve. uh, uh, on your BVM when it's attached to an ambu bag, because that's going to be beneficial for the intubated uh, CHF or acute pulmonary edema patient. Um, and of course, there's the, the airway, the mask seal issues with patients who are respiratory uh, with facial burns and and beard skin
1: abrasions.
0: Kids, and, yeah. yeah, kids under uh, under eight years of age. And of course, there's the vomiting. Uh, if a patient is vomiting. Uh, obviously, CPAP is going to be contraindicated. You've got you got a, uh, an airway uh, patency and suctioning issue. You have to manage there. Sure. Um, but if those things are not present, um, then then a little bit of sedation, a whole lot of nitroglycerin, and some CPAP will probably turn a whole lot of people around that previously we've been uh, giving them the PVC challenge and sticking 7.5 millimeters of plastic between their uh, between their vocal cords. I thought
1: you were going to say between their cheek and gum, but, uh,
0: that <laughs> but that's a, you that's know, that's a another, great big red line to cross that we'd rather not do unless it's absolutely necessary, and CPAP helps us do that.
1: Right, and just let me throw on top of that, one of the other things that we want to be uh, cognizant of is CPAP does increase interthoracic pressure. And one of the yes, things that up. we've got to think about, theoretically, is there is a risk of hypotension, there is a risk of pneumothorax, and of course, there is a risk of gastric distension, and, and we need to be able to constantly to uh, uh, reassess for those things. But, you know, it sounds like you did a great job, Kelly, and, and really yeah. kind of gave everybody the uh, the wherewithal when it comes to the use of Zipa. Yeah, and, and if
0: yeah. I, had I had to add one thing to thing yours before we close it down. out, I'd say that in those instances where, where you have a patient's hemodynamics decline just a little bit, probably due to exactly what you said, uh, increased intrathoracic pressure, uh, decreasing preload uh, for the advanced uh, providers, that'd be a good time to uh, do a judicious fluid bolus uh, to help support the patient's breathing uh, or help support the patient's perfusion a little bit better. Um, but, hey, that's what we think. We'd like to hear what you think. Do you think CPAP is, is one of the greatest things to come along since sliced bread? Is it something that EMTs could be using efficiently? We'd like to hear your thoughts and opinions. Email us at theshow at ems1.com. And for myself and co-host Chris Ceballero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We'll catch you guys next week.